0: My sister works in urban policy and planning and she's like, we don't need people building new bridges. We need people fixing the bridges we have.
1: Hello, welcome to security cryptography, whatever I'm Deirdre.
2: I'm David. I'm Tom. We have a, we have a special guest today. I'll let our guest, uh, introduce himself. Uh, I'm Justin Shue. I'm the whatever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure. And today, this is basically platform security Redux part two because we put out, this is in response to our first episode when we were trying to talk about why is iOS always on fire if it's supposed to be one of the best, the most secure operating systems in the world, quote unquote. And now we have more people to talk about what makes a secure platform. Are we wrong? Why are we wrong? Justin, why are we wrong? And where are we not wrong?
2: Hey, hey, Justin, before you tell us why we're wrong, (laughs) can you tell us what would make you qualified to Mm -hmm. tell us that we're wrong? Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, I'll try not to run down my whole
0: history. There are a few key points. So, the start of my career was intelligence community, listened to Marines as a teenager, ended up doing also a few years as civilian at NSA, followed by a few years as civilian at CIA. Had a lot of exposure to offense, defense, etc. From that perspective, then switched over a number of years of uh, security consulting, uh, which is where Tom and I first ran into each other. Co-authored a book, uh, The Art of Software Security Assessment, some of you might be familiar with, with frankly better security people than me. And then last 10 plus years until just earlier this year, I was, I guess I'd say helped build out Chrome security kind of, depending on your definition of founding member, I was a founding member of the Chrome security team, ended up being responsible for pretty much all of, or actually all of Chrome security and counter abuse by the time I left. And that was earlier this year.
2: And now I'm retired. I feel like we've established now that you're qualified to tell us where we're wrong. I'm a uh, I'm trying to get my head around what it was that I said on that first thingy that we recorded cuz my normal MO is just to like hear a couple words then randomly reply guy stuff, but I I remember us David you might remember this better than I do, but like we we had some thoughts about Bug bounties, I think I think like a a perennial thing that comes up in these discussions is like, are the major tech firms paying enough for vulnerabilities? And is the problem here that they're just not taking researchers seriously enough. And then we had a lot of thoughts on Rust and whether we can just code our way out of this problem. I'm missing some things, though, because we babbled for like an hour about that.
0: I think
3: roughly kind of where we landed is that it is possible to have major security focused initiatives at large companies. We pointed to some of the things that Microsoft did in the past, their root and branch, so to speak, efforts Mm -hmm. that you described as removing stir copy everywhere, you and I, I think were a little more skeptical that anyone could buy their way out of this problem. Like buy the entire volume market, because, you know, markets are markets, even if Apple decided to spend a billion dollars a year buying all the exploits they probably couldn't. And then we pulled a number out of thin air saying, well, not entirely out of thin air, based off of empirical results from Alex Gaynor. And then our own opinions that rewriting in a memory-safe language would probably remove 80% of the vulnerabilities in the code base. And then we had this weak kind of notion that iOS and iPadOS are kind of easier to secure than, say, Mac OS because they are a more constrained operating system as compared to a to a MacBook,
1: with like specifically expressed capabilities per application and things like that,
2: and built-in sandboxing. Yeah, I would come out of the gate here saying like I have like this ironclad conviction that I formed in 15 seconds when the question was put to us in that first podcast, but now it's something I'll believe forever that that like. <laughs> The basic idea of a state-sponsored adversary is that they have an unlimited budget, and that goes for the United States, but also like the Seychelles um, or any – like Belize, any country that you can imagine, the um, the dollar amounts that we're talking here versus the payoffs that you get – um, for, you know, what an exploit buys you versus, for instance, having to pay for the health insurance of all the people that will do the human intelligence, that those numbers are so small relative to the value that there's no number that the market could realistically come to where that would make a dent on the market. So I guess that's like my first assertion. I, I wonder, J- Justin, I wonder if you'd want to knock that down. Am I, You also, yep. you've had direct experience on the state-funded adversarial side of this as well. Am I crazy to say that? Okay. So I, yeah,
0: I, this is not where I disagreed with you. Um, I actually (laughs) like the way that I put it is that really, you can't buy or bounty your way out of these problems. You're correct from the perspective of, uh, you know, person actually building the software and trying to secure it. They don't have unlimited money, but from your perspective, they do. Bug bounties, what they're really, really useful for is after you have some level of maturity and process uh, the problem is that security teams start to develop like groupthink. Uh, they start uh, to they start to get very very blind to anything that they don't see day to day. And bug bounties are amazingly helpful at getting you a steady stream of input on the vulnerabilities that you're not seeing, the stuff that cool. your team wouldn't look for. But then the right response to a bug bounty is to go back and you know fix your process, find the scary areas of the code that you didn't know were there, fix them up, yeah. et cetera. On Chrome we would, you know, you'd see a trend of reports coming in and it's like, okay, it turns out that, uh, Dom objects are very, very loosely bound to JavaScript. Um, Mm -hmm. and people are just getting use after freeze there. It's like, oh, okay. Then you design a way to deeply root them. It's like, oh, it turns out you can blow up the render tree and stuff in (laughs) the render and, and you get stale pointers all over the render tree. It's like, oh, okay. Then you do a partition based allocator structure where you can dispose of the whole render tree at once. And it's like, okay, now you've done that, but now it's yeah, it just, it piles on. And that's what it's useful. So that's, that is why I like bug bounties.
1: That's very cool. So it's basically a signal rather Mm -hmm. than like really the kind of trying to use the market dynamics to try and like push vulns one way or the other it's for you the defender of the platform or the software project or whatever to be like tell me what i'm not seeing and if you're seeing a ton of little things in one area you can triage that and prioritize that and what you have to do to make that better whereas if you're seeing like one or two really bad things in like one or two areas like you can it that that's kind of what you're yeah
0: yeah exactly (laughs) it's like a you develop a, a sense of smell for it. These are the one-offs. It's like, okay, this was just a screw up, but it doesn't seem like a systemic problem. Yeah. Um, but we're glad people found those. But the real use is the, oh, wow, this is a systemic issue. We have to solve this.
1: Cool. All right. How do you use that to inform how you plan? Because if you're just like getting a constant stream of like, I could see it being very vulnerable to just like kind of run around with like a chicken with their head cut off and be like, oh, damn, like there's like a stream of this. How do you use that to inform your planning of what to do when and re-architect things if they need re-architecting?
0: So this is this gets into the whole discussion of like embedded security teams versus what I call the throw over the wall ah. security teams. And the answer is that uh, so. I refer to throw it over the wall security teams and like the extreme case of this is external security consultants, where ah. you hire someone to come in, do an audit, you know, every six months here or whatever. And I did that for years. I did it in the federal government. I did it uh, as a consultant. I do not like it. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned that it just it doesn't tend to work as well because the question that you're asking about prioritizing and all that, you're not able to do it, right? Mm-hmm. The people with the expertise aren't part of those architectural decisions in that. Uh, and so from very early on, uh, when we were spinning up the Chrome security team. Our intent was to have a deeply embedded security team where like large chunks of Chrome code were uh, owned or are owned by Chrome security. For many years, I was one of the eight root owners of the Chromium repository. So I was one of the own, you know one of the people who could prove any change in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are teams in Chrome security that are, deeper experts on on some of the core uh, chrome code infrastructure than regular feature teams are cool. uh, and so that's that's how you do it you have to i think it only works if you have a an embedded security team and you've resourced them well enough so that they can make big changes
1: yeah
3: i was to say do you think that the bug bounties have that same sort of third party take use case to drive rearchitecture or prioritization for things that aren't necessarily a web browser or an operating system. Like if I just have a large piece of SaaS software or a midsize SaaS software, can you get any value out of a bug bounty beyond PR? I guess is the, mean, like the,
0: the hot takeaway of phrasing it. So if you, if, if you're just talking about sort of like, what does a bug bounty tell you, it, it basically tells you, have you stopped up a halfway decent security team? Like I will say uh-huh. we started the Chrome bounty. We were not ready uh, <laughs> for the onslaught of WebKit bugs that we oh. got, and it was just yeah, it was it was uh, yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, it was a tidal wave, and it gave us the insight that oh, we need to beef up our security investment more. And this corresponded with the whole uh, Aurora incident. Um, it, yeah. So I was part of the response team on the Aurora, Aurora cool. incident. I was going to um, say,
1: tell us, what is the Aurora incident? <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Sorry. The Aurora incident was um, back in 2009 and 2010. It spanned 2009, late 2009 to 2010. It was when Chinese intelligence essentially compromised, not just Google, but compromised Google was detected. And we found lots of other compromises, et cetera, as part of running it down. One thing that happened after the Aurora incident was... Google took security seriously, but post Aurora is, it was a world of difference. Like yeah. I was saying Google ignored security. They had some very good people, but like the massive focus and investment, I mean, you had Sergey Brin saying he wanted the name Google mm. to be synonymous with security and throwing the investment necessary to make that happen. Mm. And so conveniently, as there was a big push to invest in security, we were also able to respond to that poke bounty that we started <laughs> by stepping um. up.
1: Have you happened to read Nicole Perloff's book? This is how they tell me the world ends. They have an account of the Aurora (laughs) incident at the time. as sort of like a history of the zero day market. I, I think it's quite good, but you were there. So maybe you could tell me otherwise.
0: I have not read the book. I will admit that I've seen several excerpts from the book and like heard interviews of that, that
2: made me less inclined to read the book.
1: Okay. (laughs) Where? <laughs> but uh, all, I know,
2: all I know about the book is that they were mean to Dave Vitell. That's like the, 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 one, the, the one thing I have about the book is that it was mean Money. to Dave Vitell.
0: <laughs> I have the book on my shelf, but I haven't read it yet. I mean, a lot of people have been mean to Dave. I, I think he almost uh, revels in it a bit. At some point, you have to have Dave on. But uh, yeah, what I would say is one of the fundamental premises of the book seem to be you can buy your way out of uh, security vulnerabilities, which... I guess maybe like the NSA or whatever could audit their way out of it. And that, and yeah, I've already expressed I disagree with that fundamental premise. Unless I'm misreading. I see f- an expression that makes me feel it's like- It's kind misreading.
1: of like this is happening and we are all vulnerable. Like we users of software are vulnerable and it's just sort of, it's, and you know, it culminates with like this wave of ransomware attacks across the world in the past year plus or whatever. And it's just sort of like, oh, we've got, Uh, shadow brokers just like releasing these exploits based on this like five-year-old zero-day windows that they sat on for ages. And now we're all screwed because someone got that out and it got, you know, turned into, I forget which, which one it was, not Petya, one of those. And we're all screwed and this is happening. And that's kind of the thing. Like there are bug bounty markets, but it's not so much that they are good and they solve the problem it's just that they exist and also oh my god everything is insecure we're all gonna die
2: (laughs) i guess there's like there's some interesting like dynamics justin and i have like a shared background in security like software security consulting work right and like there are some really basic things you learn quickly when you're doing consulting and one of them is that even for really excellent teams that have really great track records of, you know, doing assessment work, right? If you take three different teams and throw them at the same target, there'll be like a 60% overlap or maybe a 70% overlap in what they find. But different sets of eyes will definitely find vulnerabilities. Also, so like one thing bug bounties do is they optimize for the number of different eyes that you get there. Mm-hmm. Also like, I think the incentives of bug bounties are probably really good for finding systemic issues because mm-hmm. bug bounty people are motivated in a way that consultants are to find mm. variants of things. So as a security consultant, like what you're really kind of fighting against um, or what you're working against is boredom when you're going after a target. So like Cut. the temptation is always, you find a pattern of vulnerabilities, you find the game over expression of that vulnerability, and then you report it as systemic, right? And then you've done your job, right? Like I found more than one and here's the the game over version. So you have to take it seriously. And now you guys, you're the engineers, you go do the work and bug bounty people have exactly the opposite incentive. Are you making a cathedral and bazaar argument for, yeah, you for know, bug bounties? I said Thomas? I used the I used the word eyeballs, and I immediately regretted it. So it was it was in my brain when I said it, and like you know, it's it's very bad. And I I'll find a different metaphor so that we're not invoking uh, that. But like. My experience with bug bunny people has been like, they're incredibly motivated to find and get paid for the most minute variations of things. So like we've had clients where like, before we got to those clients, they had paid out, you know, several rounds of bounties for like the same redirect vulnerability. You know, it's like an open redirect on a web application. And like, they break it with a filter and the filter's broken. Like they report that five or six times. And like the first thing you do when you come in there and say like, you know, okay, we're done with the redirect vulnerabilities. We'll go track them down. That's the dynamics of how that works, right? Is like you, you find a pattern of vulnerabilities, then you scour everything for it because you're making money on it. Right. So like the, the incentives kind of line up with trying to flush out. I, I don't know how true that is in large scale, like product work, like Chrome, because I've never worked on a team like that. You know, Manning bounties for SaaS products, that was definitely one of the values that you got out of it. Also, like bug bounty people find different bugs. Um, yes. There's less status involved. In the work that they're doing uh, there's definitely a bias in consulting to look for high status vulnerabilities um, or interesting vulnerabilities and bug bounty people are um i was going to use the word shameless but it's not shameless it's like what we're doing is shameful with the bug bounty people that are doing it's probably correct it's
1: like if they find something and they'll get paid for it they'll submit it it doesn't matter yep. if it's like the best or the shiniest or the coolest or you know novel or whatever it's like does it work does it count give me here it is give me it
0: yeah they're just ching kaching, caching. Ka-ching. That is their goal. And yeah, there's a consultants will find you a different class of vulnerabilities. And yeah, I mean I spent a lot of time as a consultant. You're kind of going for this year report, as as Thomas said. And yeah, you get you, you see very different things from consultants that you than you do from uh from bug bounties.
3: The exploit developers who are like selling to NSO and so on are, are probably finding yet another well, maybe not a completely different class, but they have different incentives again, because they're trying to one, they're only looking for the game over versions or they're more interested in things that could turn into the game over versions. And they don't have the PR aspects associated with submitting to the
0: bug bounty. They're trying to develop a product almost. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much a different class. It, it depends on like which shop it came out of, right? It's not a, a huge number of people that are actually doing this, right? You tend to have different people, different styles. I, I think it, in a way, it's almost more like personal style plays into it. But at the end of the day, huh. um, I think you, when you were talking about it, uh, you were talking about how it's now become like a service industry, and it's actually been a service industry for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, where it, it was a long time ago that people would just sell a proof of concept and hand it over to you know whoever's going to use it in the wild. Now it's like they got to keep these things up to date. There are service yeah. contracts, stuff like that. Yeah. It's a it's a big freaking business, um, and they have to they have to support this software. You're not just hey, I found this bug. Here you go. No, there's a, there's a lot more to it.
2: We all I think we, we all know that there's like a the work of actually producing reliable exploits, it's there's a division of labor, right? Yep. Um so there there's like the finding of vulnerabilities and qualifying vulnerabilities and then writing a proof of concept and then fully weaponizing and making them reliable. Mm-hmm. I guess like here's a place where I'm flying completely blind and all of you might know better than I do, but like how much of that division of labor is expressed in the marketplace, right? Do we think do we believe that like NSO has a team of people that can take really bad proof of concept exploits, and then they can internally just weaponize them. Like they don't really, they don't have to care about how easy the, the, the vulnerabilities are to weaponize, or is it the researcher themselves that has to do that work, figuring out how to like bounce through this set of allocations and, you know, all that work. And the reason I ask is that, like, if it's the latter, if it's the researcher that has to figure out how to make the exploit reliable, then there's, there might be an argument for um, reducing the supply of those experts, you know, by paying more to bounties and things like that. But it, on the other hand, if it's NSO doing most of the or whatever the thing is, right, um, doing most of the, the reliableizing tree. work, then... Um, you know, you have a much broader pool of people that can potentially find those vulnerabilities and then NSO can just full-time the people that can take that work and turn them into reliable exploits.
0: So accepting that any detailed knowledge I have on this is fairly stale. think like <laughs> what uh, Deirdre said about it might be in between from my old past understanding. That's it. Yeah, it. It depends. Was was my <laughs> experience, but this this is this is knowledge that today might be stale. Like it's entirely possible things are much more productionized than uh, than they used to be.
3: My understanding from the the Black Hat talk a couple years ago is that the more reliable your exploit is, the more you will get paid by the firms buying it, as well yeah. as like they will spend effectively engineering effort productionizing your ex exploit, but. Obviously, the less they have to do of that, like
1: the better they are. The they them. would prefer to spend
3: money to do less of that. Yeah. Because everybody wants to spend money instead of doing software development. But I imagine that they have to do some of it anyway because they need yeah. to, they want to like hook it to their command and control or yes. pick what payloads they're something. Even if the use after free is completely reliable to get whatever they want to send in, they still need to
2: decide what they want to do with it. Yeah, exactly. Do we think, like, the white market for vulnerabilities, whatever the word is, because white market sounds terrible, uh, but uh, whatever, like, the, the above-board market for vulnerabilities is, do we think those vulnerabilities are undervalued right now? Or, I don't know, right? Like but
1: Apple like, and, like, vendors?
0: What do you mean by
2: above-board yeah. vulnerab- market? You're just saying, Apple- like, bounty programs, right?
0: Bounty programs, okay. yes. I don't think it's undervalued because I think you're because you're trying to do something different. I okay. mean, like, we're at a place where... It depends on the vendor. I would say that people who I talk to, they find Apple's terms on their bounty program to be onerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is one thing. I would say that people generally consider Chrome's terms to be fairly, fairly amenable. And those are
3: like the conditions and the terms, not the like pricing, right? The like yeah. how you Let's, submit and when you get to talk about it and when you don't and how they respond to you type stuff.
0: Well, yeah. And also, frankly, what what counts as in scope, what counts as out of scope, et cetera. Mm. Chrome has my perspective on Chrome is that Chrome has always been fairly open minded on what counts as in scope. What will you change about the Apple rules if you could like move in right now and just fix them? So this is the problem. I haven't actually sat down and read their terms. I've mostly heard grapes. And so I can't say exactly what I would change. My impression was that, actually, you know, I I, I probably shouldn't even give an, uh, an impression that might be totally uninformed. Uh, all I know is <laughs> That's that the people... the whole people... point
2: of the show. <laughs> well...
0: Basically, the big complaint that you would get is, like, haggling over what counts as in-scope, um, haggling right. over what's rewardable, etc., being very ambiguously defined.
2: Mm.
3: What does it mean to, like, have the use of the Chrome's was more open as to what counted in scope. What does it mean to do that versus not?
0: So with Chrome, there was um, a lot of effort put in to get um, pretty specific about what was rewardable, why, what counted as a security boundary, et cetera, both from an engineering standpoint, because it made it easier internally um, and externally made it easier for people reporting bugs. Like for a bounty hunter, they, bounty hunter, for bug bounty hunter, they don't want to, um, they don't want to burn a lot of cycles on something that's not going to pay money, right? Mm So I Um, guess
1: one thing that is hard to tease out is there's prices and it's hard to tease out whether the prices for bug bounties are actually moving markets or moving people to report to vendors, to the white market, as opposed to the gray market or black market. When you've got these differing terms between bug bounties that may also be affecting what gets reported to whom.
0: Yeah, but I think you're dealing with fundamentally different groups of people. Okay. between these markets. I don't think there's, uh, there is obviously going to be some overlap, but I don't think there's a ton of overlap between people who are, uh, who are doing bug bounties and people who are selling stuff to NSO, et cetera. Mm,
1: okay.
0: On my sample size of one, the one person I know who's like actually sold exploits does not
3: submit to bug bounties at all.
0: Yeah. Mm. The people like, you interact with the people who do the bounties and they're like, so, chrome's as an example actually perfect example for chrome's it's like you show memory corruption we don't require you to prove that it's exploitable and in fact i think there's a good chance that chrome rewards lots of memory corruption vulnerabilities that are not pragmatically exploitable um but it's like this is the line if you can demonstrate memory corruption and that means that it it just makes it easier because you don't have to write exploit or anything else like that you just have a simple proof of concept uh and chrome's uh like the Chrome's own systems will do the minimization and everything to try to create a reduced test case. So it's, it's relatively low friction. There are a lot of things that Chrome does to incentivize people reporting um, and to make it easier for reporters. It was just a cultural, it was part of the culture that created the program and it's carried its way through. I love that. <laughs> but like I said, it's an input channel. You want, you want,
2: you want to get that signal. You want to get a strong signal. I feel like like the top line of this discussion is always just the idea that like a reliable RCE or whatever is, I mean, people on message boards think that, you know, logout C-surfs are worth, you know, $10 million or whatever. Just they like, <laughs> come up with like some percentage of the total market value of a company and then that's the value of a vulnerability. But like, th- I, there's like a general idea that like, you know, a reliable drive-by, you know, iPhone remote or something like that has some um, kind of market value that we can assign and we should be paying the actual market value for that vulnerability for it. I'm pretty sure I feel like that's wrong, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I, I'm having trouble putting my finger on why I feel that's wrong. right? Because right it sounds second. like
1: they're not one market. It's different yeah. markets. And so it's impossible if they're not playing in your market, they're disjoint. So what are you doing?
0: Yeah, that exactly. That was that my take being responsible for that program for several years is that you're dealing with with different groups of people. There might okay. be some overlap. But I think there's people have this assumption there's overlap. And that's not something that I observed in practice.
1: Basically, you can't model them as like, oh, if we raise a price over here, that will incentivize the same type of reporter to come over to here. And it's like, no, except for outliers. That's not true, basically. Yeah,
2: I mean, mean, just a devil's advocate, right? There isn't perfect overlap, right? Like there's a lot of work that somebody who sells functional exploits does that a bug bounty person for the Chrome bounty doesn't have to do. you know, and they go for breadth and not depth, and the other person has to go for Mm. depth and all that, right? But in theory, if you dial the incentive up enough, you can have the bounty people, you know, flush out. Both groups of people have to do that initial kind of reconnaissance work of finding where the vulnerabilities are in the first place, right? So in theory, if you dial the price up enough, you could have the bounty people finding vulnerabilities before the exploit people do. Potentially, yeah. I should clarify that The Chrome bounty program also does
0: have incentives where it's like, hey, look, we will pay you a lot more if you can produce a reliable exploit. And if you chain a series of reliable exploits together to produce like a full sandbox escape, et cetera, within a certain time window, we will like pay you for that full sandbox escape. And there's a lot of details to the bounty program to try to sort of maximize the the kind of information that you get and and to encourage people but yeah at the end of the day most of the reports are 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 not people who are running it down and building a full exploit etc
3: i saw a talk recently where they were saying that bug bounties need to allow people to like work on a bug over a period of time so that they can take it from i found like your initial bug to i have a full working exploit Like, is that a thing that's feasible to do? Because it seems like you might just want to go fix the thing. Like, if you learn that you have a memory corruption, you might just go fix it before the person writes a full exploit, even if you did have that type of policy.
0: No, that's the way that the Chrome bounty is actually structured Mm -hmm. so that it's like, yes, you were, you know, it was that first, like the engineering team wouldn't fixed it, but you know, you can still finish off because the idea is you want them to report the vulnerability as quickly as it's confirmed. But if you want to encourage that additional research, you also have to have that extra flexi- flexibility in the program.
2: Yeah,
3: because I think I saw someone on Twitter was saying they had found the bug that was used by the NSO group mm. on the iOS and they didn't report it because they didn't have a full working exploit yet. They had just located the, the bug and okay. they were, wanted to turn it into a full exploit. Okay, that's not a good term.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, but when, is, maybe it wasn't that the insane
3: bug, but it was a bug in Apple that was similar. Something that's been patched recently.
2: You can see right away the incentives there are terrible. If you've got a, yes, if you've yeah. got a condition in your bounty that. Asks people not to report until they've done all of the work for it. That's awful. Oh, yeah. but that
0: was, that was, we, we made that mistake when we originally designed the program and started adding like extra things where it's like, okay, you know, for a full, for a full sandbox escape chain, we will get this much. And so people started sitting on things um, and we realized they were sitting on things. We're like, okay, we are updating the program to so account did, for this.
1: Okay. So how does it go now? So how's it go to avoid that?
0: Oh, so people can, some can report the bug. Um, but there's like a, my recollection is that there's a time window. I'll throw out six months. It might be six months where it's like from when you report the uh, one bug and you can keep reporting bugs and sort of chain it together and develop, uh, you know, full exploit, et cetera, and kind of keep racking up uh, a higher payout as a result. Thus, okay. you're going incentivized to report the first one earlier because they're also worried about collisions, right? Right. Yeah. There's, and you do get collisions. I think people dramatically overestimate the volume of collisions. But um everybody gets collisions. And this was the thing that we had been hearing, like what we heard from like good reporters who had regularly reported bug stuff. They're like, oh, I found that one. But uh I hadn't reported it yet because uh I wanted to develop a full exploit or I wanted to try to use it in a chain. And that's why we revised cool.
1: the cool okay. Yeah. So basically if you're first, you get first dibs, but you get to keep racking up your score if you get like a, a fully working exploit, a repeatable exploit, a kill chain, uh, and so on and so on. Cool, I like it.
2: So if, if David reports a memory corruption vulnerability to Chrome, Without the, you know, without the rest of the exploit chain attached to it. And then I come in, this is a fantasy world where I do browser exploit work and I'm not totally incompetent at that stuff now. Also a Um,
3: fantasy world where I can do memory corruption at all without screwing up the math. Like I taught intro computer security before and for the memory corruption part, I would bring someone else in to teach it because I can't (laughs) subtract two memory addresses to save my life. Even if I could tell everybody where the vulnerabilities
0: were in their assignments.
2: it, it was so easy
0: real- when when Tom and I started out.
2: I remember feeling very cool and special for coming up with shellcode that didn't have any uppercase letters in it. Like, yes, So, wow, that was like my colleague card. Like, yes, I'm, I'm definitely uh, I, I'm very solid at this stuff. Here's the exploit I produced. That's or you no have 16 shellcode meant you were like a freaking master. And- yes, yeah, yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's it's definitely gotten it's definitely gotten worse, right? But so so in this weird fantasy world, right, where like David submits the memory corruption vulnerability, and then we like. We collide on what the vulnerability is, but I submit the bug chain that goes with it. Do we both get paid out? Uh, No.
0: So the program, as far as I recall, is still entirely first come, first serve. Different programs have chosen to do this different ways. Some people say, hey, look, if a a group of people reports it within this time interval, they each get a cut um, of it. But the decision was made very early on on Chrome team that the first person to report is the one who gets the bounty. And then and part of it is just because when you dupe a bug report, it's just... There, Like, there's a certain logistical thing to it. But also, I think it's just fairer to say first one to report gets it because then you're incentivizing people to report quickly.
1: Yeah.
0: And hey, Boba Fett doesn't get paid if he's not the person
3: that gets the kill.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Bounty hunters. <laughs> so, like, I, I guess for many years, for a while, I think David was involved in this a little bit and so was Job. We did some security work for Campaigns. And like the the election cycle before this election cycle, we did it kind of big time. And uh, we we came up with a bunch of security recommendations for um, kind of ordinary people. And like our top line recommendations, like things that we would tell normal people to try and understand, like the threat landscape would be that for phones, we'd recommend iPhones that like every iPhone was, you know more secure. Uh, just generally, I'll, I'll be more intellectually honest about it and just say that at the time we said iPhones, iOS, just more secure than Android. Yeah. But then on the browser side, I would strongly prefer Chrome over Safari. And I would say right now, I still, I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of stand by the the Chrome and the actual Chrome or Chromium project and not spinoffs of Chrome or Chromium. As you should. Uh, which would be kind of my gospel on what browser to use, mm-hmm. and I, I I still tell people, and I believe that you know iOS is more secure than Android. Although there's like a, a meme going around ever since that um that Zerodium thing came out, where we're not paying for iOS vulnerabilities anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are now people that believe that iOS vulnerabilities are uh, worthless. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I guess I have two questions, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm iPhone over Android, and I'm Chrome over Safari. So I'd be curious to see your thoughts on whether I'm wrong about that. And then I have a spicy question to add to this, which is, what about Firefox?
1: Yeah, I was about to say.
2: (laughs) All right.
0: So what I would say is that I am personally pixel over iOS. Uh, It is correct that if you're just going to compare uh, Android to uh, as a whole to iOS, Uh then you are dealing with a massive and extremely varied ecosystem yes uh but android deservedly had a bad rap for security the amount of investments and the like everything that went into that over over many many years now i feel has uh has changed that game i think where it gets more complicated though is it's it's not like windows right where they control the image They can, Mm. and even in Windows, there's like, you you know, who did you buy your PC from? It might've had a bunch of stuff, extra stuff on it, et cetera. Um, And that's, and that's the thing, even on Windows, because it's a big ecosystem and not just one vendor that you get that, you know, you're exposed to a wide variety of, uh, of things. And I, I am very much uh, on the side of a well-configured Windows 10, like a decently configured Windows 10 machine is a safer bet than uh, say Mac OS. Um, Mm. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go on that one, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with <laughs> you on that. Yeah. The uh, if, I,
1: if I've learned anything from Swift on security, that, that that's basically true now. <laughs> what,
0: what does it mean to be decently configured, though? I mean, basically, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bundleware stuff that out of the box Anyway, I should decently configured is basically, did they install a bunch of bundleware? And Microsoft's gotten really aggressive at trying to prevent the kind of dangerous bundleware. So I think a new Windows ten machine actually comes relatively safe. so uh, like a clean install by a power user
3: counts as decently yes. configured.
0: Cool. yeah, but I think most of the stuff you're getting in the store because Microsoft has been uh, so aggressive with the way uh, the jumpstart incentives and everything works. They can't do the same kind of bundleware they used to see. But yeah, the reason why I would pick Android over iOS is that, or specifically Pixel over iOS, is that in Pixel, you are getting, you're getting monthly security updates. You are getting essentially the most hardened version of Android. The browser is a huge, is a massive attack surface. And Mm -hmm. yes, I will go into detail why I would put Chrome Mm -hmm. up against Safari any day of the week. But I think that's one of the areas where you have a ton of attack surface and it's just much stronger. Mm -hmm. To get into the why. Yes. Of Chrome over
3: Safari. Before you say that, I have one question about Android. So as you know, I interned in Chrome security back in 2016, and I kind of remember the general attitude amongst people that were not on Android at Google about Android security circa 2016. Has that tenor, how has that tenor changed? Like, do you think there's been major improvement since 2016? Is it? Or was Pixel being good, everything else having bundleware issues, kind of the state of the world back in 2016?
0: In 2016, they had started the work long before 2016. Like, point blank, Andy Rubin was hostile to the idea of security. Like, remember, he went and started another phone company and mm. his, he, you know, they listed all of the staff. And for the two security roles was Andy Rubin's dogs. Uh, like, he just, he, he, he didn't conceptually, he, he argued against security. Um, and so, I would say that things started dramatically improving after Andy left, and we can all agree that that was that Andy's attitude towards security was probably among the least of his flaws. <laughs> um, it just it takes time, right? Like you can't move a ship that big overnight, and it just mm. it took time and a lot of work. And the Android team put in a lot of time, put in a lot of work. I don't know. I've seen a lot of improvements, but it, it took time for those improvements to to really have an effect.
1: Okay, this plays to some of the things we were talking about in our first episode about iOS security. What were some of those things that you had to turn the aircraft carrier around to accomplish? Architectural practices? Give me, give me the meat.
0: Yeah. All right. So I was not on Android. So this will be in Co- reference okay. to Chrome. Okay. Like you were uh, at Google.
1: So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but honestly, it was Google's. So the thing about Google that I think.
1: Google's weird. It's like all these orgs, especially like Android and Chrome. Yes. And then there's like the rest of Google. And there's like searches its own like Citadel.
0: Yeah, exactly. Orgs that Google operate. I, I spent a lot of time going in and out of companies as a consultant. I, I saw the deep internals turtles, how the U.S. government worked in a lot of places. <laughs> I have never seen uh, the level of, sort of independent organizational operation elsewhere that I've seen it like Google. And I, and I was in the Marines where the general <laughs> was basically like, my base is my base. And I'm still like, yeah, he doesn't hold a candle to an SVP of a uh, product area at Google. So what? yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I so but I can't give you examples from Chrome. So site isolation yes. uh, was like fundamental rearchitecture of yeah. huge swaths of the browser. You had a uh, naskroscophene team. Can his you explain
2: team. what site isolation is oh, yes, as sorry. compared so, to whatever type of isolation was there Can you give me a couple sentences that I can just drop on people on Hacker News for site isolation? <laughs> this is a fair point. So site isolation was designed around the notion that
0: so we have this good process sandbox, mm-hmm. and if you can say, hey, we are going to bind the process sandbox to an origin and say, if you open up something on google.com, only google.com is going to go in this process. So the idea being, instead of having to do a whole bunch of checks all over the code to determine if one origin can in, uh, interact with another in ways that, you know, memory corruption in even the renderer process could bypass, you say, no, look, this render is google.com. It doesn't get to touch anything outside of Google.com and nothing outside of Google.com uh, gets to dig into it.
1: And it's HTTPS or HTTP. The, it, yeah, the so origin it, is what, HTTPS, Google.com, not HTTP, Google.com. Those are different yes. origins.
0: Yes. So, well, and this is why it's called site. The definition of site is fuzzy because it's not truly yeah. an origin. Yeah. So uh, HTTP is kind of in the in the doghouse, you know, yeah. that's in the dirty bucket where you're like, eh, we can't really make guarantees with HTTP, but yes. We will just upgrade of...
1: you forever now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, if that we... is
0: that is actually the strategy of solving the HTTP problem to eventually <laughs> upgrade everything. But yeah, it's essentially effective top-level domain plus one mm-hmm. goes in its own process. And that just makes uh, the security reason around origins so much simpler. But one of the really nice things it gets you is that if you get uh, code execution inside of a, a renderer process, so like you compromise V8 or whatever. Mm. um you still have to find a way to bypass site isolation to manipulate any other origin, like Mm. the old model. And this is frankly the way that the other browsers work. Uh, uh, Yes, still, is that if you get code execution inside the renderer process, you effectively have universal cross-site scripting. But (laughs) in Chrome, if you get code execution inside the renderer process, you are still bound to origin hosted that. Now, there are some Mm -hmm. exceptions where... um, it's, it's funny. Usage patterns on desktop allow you to do a bunch of coalescing of processes, but mm. usage patterns on desktop are very different from usage patterns on mobile. On mobile, you you don't have the same kind of coalescing. So instead of applying site isolation everywhere, on mobile site isolation is there There are various heuristics that are used to determine if, oh, this site needs to be isolated. Like one of them being if we detect that you've logged into the site, that it's like, yeah. okay, it definitely needs to be isolated, et cetera. Um, they are doing as much as they can to get the is resource utilization the performance? down. Yes, it's a resource okay. utilization thing. Okay. And they keep sort of expanding the set of things that can be isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right off the bat, if you're isolating things that the user logged into, that's mm-hmm. already helping a lot. Mm-hmm. So Cytos isolation is not uh, perfect, but it is a huge win. The other thing I would say in terms of like a big advantage of Chrome over other browsers is Chrome has a much more... Ro- robustly sandbox renderer process, Mm -hmm. the Chrome renderer process doesn't have uh, access to the network. It does Mm -hmm. not have access to graphics devices. It does not have access to the input event stack, et cetera. Like all of that is split out because the idea being that, uh, like you remember the old windows, low integrity mode, or for anyone who does remember the old windows, low integrity mode, the problem is that there was a lot of ambient authority because you could fire off events. Uh, So there are a lot of ways to Abuse input to abuse access to graphics. Act. Uh, you had the like. You had all these things, and that was why people were always finding escapes out of uh, low integrity mode. So, from the beginning of the design of the Chrome renderer process, the intent was to have none of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How does the renderer not have access to
3: the graphics card?
0: Is there a separate actual renderer? There is a GPU process, <laughs> and the GPU process is sandbox to the degree it can be so this is the other piece where it's like people talk about sandboxing like it's a binary state where it's like no no, no. sandboxing is an approach it's like where what you allow in what you allow out how you, there's there's a tremendous amount of variance there mm. um so it's not the kind of thing where you can say eh, it's just sandbox
1: this goes to something that you might have you might have been already wanting to talk about but You can't mitigate your way out of a failure to isolate your software along its security boundaries. So that seems to to (laughs) directly be about sandboxing and other things.
0: Well, and it doesn't just have to be sandboxing, right? Like there are other ways to isolate, like memory safe languages provide forms of isolation. The V8 team just made the announcement of, I think calling it Uber cage or something. What? uh, well, because okay. I think it's Apple already took like Giga Cage. Also, they're a German team. So, you know. Oh, cool. cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> but the idea being that they already had to do this thing called pointer compression, where the VA runtime is actually only dealing with the four gigabyte address space. Yeah. Um, but what they're doing is it's actually quite similar to the design of the old 64 bit natural sandbox. They are bounding operations within that address space and they're providing large ranges to block the edges of that address space. So that's yeah. another, now, and now we're not oh, talking about process yeah. level sandbox, yeah. but we are talking about something that uh, provides guarantees about confined execution. You can't touch anything outside this address space. Yeah. Um, and so like they're working on that right now. You know, rewriting parts in Rust are another example. There, There's lots of different primitives that you can use to isolate, reduce your attack surface. One of you said on that episode, something about uh, how good is, Pack when you're dealing with bundles of messages. Yeah. Dynamic dispatch, something along those yeah. lines. And that's, and I that's think my it was like on,
1: iMessage and stuff.
0: Yeah. And this is, this is my problem with, so this was one of my complaints with sort of the Apple strategy that I've been observing. It uh-huh. it has a very similar smell to the Microsoft 1990 strategy, where it's a, it's a sort of a belligerent approach to how they deal with vulnerability researchers and deal with the security community. And they, They're layering on mitigations, but mitigations aren't going to solve your architectural issues. You just have to get in there and fix the architecture.
1: Would you consider Blastor a mitigation or an architectural change?
0: I have not taken it apart.
1: Mm-hmm. To it, well see. neither have I. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's the I don't I don't understand what it does well enough. Okay. Right? right? Like it's like, okay, you know, we wrote this in a memory safe language and we and we maximize the seatbelt policy. I would like to see the seatbelt policy to, mm-hmm. to get a sense of what it is. But it, it depends, right? I don't know if you've anyone seen me go on a rant against Electron. But I my problem not. Okay, Please. so my problem with Electron <laughs> is that with Electron, people people would complain, yeah, they shut off the sandbox. I'm like, I don't care that they shut off the sandbox. I care that every Electron app opens these IPC messages that even if you mm. were sandboxing things, it doesn't matter. It's like mm-hmm. the thing on the other side is still exposing all of its attack surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would, that's the thing I would have to. So you'd asked about like architectural things, like process mm-hmm. wise, it's very important to have your security team deeply involved. So Chrome has a very strong code review uh, culture. You have to get a code review mm-hmm. um, from an owner before you can land things. The IPC message system and that when you create new IPC messages, et cetera, that's owned by the Chrome security team. Yes, interprocess cool. communication. Yeah, because okay. that's your main uh, attack yep. surface between, uh, between different sandbox processes. That has to be reviewed. The normal code review process has to go through one of the qualified reviewers on Chrome security. Got and so... It. Anytime you are bridging that attack surface, you have someone who, you know, should have sufficient security expertise reviewing to try to catch errors, catch mistakes, catch things Mm -hmm. where like, oh, you just added a backdoor and you didn't know
2: it Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's really, really easy to do that. I have so many questions that Mm -hmm. I won't keep us too long on this, but I'll ask too, right? So with regards to like the success story for, for Chrome, I guess this is. Three questions, right? So first of all, uh, when you read published accounts of bug chains and things like that, like I feel like there's there's a survivorship bias in terms of what you're reading. Like the bugs that we're reading about, it would seem from reading it, like that the sandboxing isn't working at all, right? Like every vulnerability you read about comes with a story about how they then bypassed all the you know the sandbox and they got a kernel LPE and things like that, right? So. I guess I have two related, first of all, questions about how successful do you feel like the sandbox is? Like, what do you think its success rate is at, you know, at cutting memory corruption vulnerabilities off? And then I guess my other related question is, if you had to, like, do, like, 100% of Chrome security and divide it up, sandboxing would own, what, 60% of that versus runtime hardening or 80% of it versus runtime hardening or? Uh, Yeah, that's that is hard to say. There's there's not a lot of development left on sandboxing.
0: Like in terms of the actual like ongoing work, where it's like it's right. the architecture, it's built, it's this way. Yep. I I I would say the next big thing in Chrome is to memory safety, but it's something that you have to like. It's something you have to roll in slowly mm-hmm. um, and carefully. And um, you know, I made it. I I made a comment to all of you beforehand about you know you can't uh, rewrite it. Rust is not a strategy. It just logistically it's not a strategy. There's well, way too you much code. Can rewrite
1: parts in Rust.
0: Yes, and I think rewrite parts in Rust makes sense. Then okay. again there's a lot of things that could be done to fix C++. Um, okay, hold on. Hold on a second. <laughs> oh, sorry. Like, we,
2: have, we, have a good, we have a good segue here, right? But before, oh, I, let you, before I let you fully take the segue, yes. um, speak, speaking of REST, I'm not going to let you off the hook on Firefox. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So simply by looking at the security architecture
0: and that, I think the Firefox team does really well, but Chrome has a more restrictive sandbox. Chrome has proper site isolation. Chrome has more isolation between different uh, processes by capability. There's a network process, there's a GPU process, et cetera. So I think Chrome just has a better architecture. I think the Mm -hmm. Mozilla team does uh, amazing with uh, the resources they have um, Mm -hmm. and the architecture, the extent to which they've evolved Gecko to make it um, safer and more multi-processed. And they, at least they're introducing a form of site isolation, which is essentially address space isolation, Mm -hmm. um, which will address things like specter vulnerabilities, stuff like that. So I think they're doing great work, but I'm still going to, when I look at the breakout and the numbers, I, yeah, I'm i going to recommend Chrome. Sure. So wh- wh- why hasn't Chrome been rewritten in Rust?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> because it's millions and millions of lines of code. Um, <laughs> so I spent a large chunk of my time on Chrome actually managing non-security teams too. There are just different points where, because of situations I took on, I took mm-hmm. on the desktop team, uh, I took on the extensions team, uh, enterprise team, like various different teams where I was responsible for, I say team because more, it's an org than uh, more than a team mm-hmm. for, for many of these. But uh, I I had to intimately learn about the, like the staffing and prioritization and all of that and figure out how to balance all of those things. And so I look at Rust uh, and I say, okay, you could not feasibly rewrite it in Rust. I look at Rust and I think that there, I think it's crazy to not be uh, testing out Rust for certain parts of the code. Mm-hmm. For like, there are tons of places where you could be making targeted uses of Rust and it's yeah. and it's just the right call right now. Rust is mature enough, et cetera. Then again, yes. I also, I have been trying to, I've been playing with Rust since I, you know, uh, am no longer employed. Uh, what, what,
2: what do you think? <laughs> I started writing
0: Rust like last year, so. Yeah, I do not like the de- developer ergonomics of it so far. I do not like the availability. Really? The- <laughs> yeah, well, and it's it might take some getting used to. I didn't like C++ at first either. But mm-hmm. when I look at it logistically, I have, I can find C++ programmers. I can do a lot of things to wow. add safeguards and partition things, et cetera. I can staff teams. It is hard for me to find Rust programmers. The Rust programmers are probably going to be significantly less productive, if only because we you don't have the full set of like existing code, et cetera, like there's it's it is just a very expensive mm. proposition. Like even in my side projects that I'm doing right now, where I was trying to use Rust. I've given up on using Rust for the majority of the project because oh. I would have to rewrite a whole bunch of code that I already wanted to use that uh, uh, that was available. I'd have to rewrite it in Rust and, I, and, and I'm like, this is just an exhausting experience. So instead mm. I partitioned out and it's like, OK, I'll use Rust over here. But I'm not going to use it for the meat of the code, and I think that's actually a reasonable mm. strategy. I I wish that the people that started Rust had taken more of a C plus plus style approach to it, which is figure out a way to build a bridge between the languages. Mm. Uh, it is it is painful. Not to, the FFI interface. Well, the FFI interface though, but it's not going to let you port existing code, right? So that now you can write new code. Um, mm. There's actually someone on the Chrome team who. Uh, uh, on Chrome Security, who's been doing a bunch of work on improving, you know, C plus compat with Rust, mm. uh, because there's still uh, a lot more that can be done. But like, take the FMI interface; you're not going to get C plus objects, right? Because that's not okay. standardized, et cetera. And yeah, it's just it's hard. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say that if there had been a way to create essentially a dialect of C that you could piecemeal port with similar guarantees to Rust, you wouldn't necessarily get all the, uh, the same guarantees. I feel like that would have that would just be so much easier logistically.
1: Just have a giant unsafe block and just copy paste your C++ <laughs> and then just fight with, with Rust-C until it compiles. <laughs> well, isn't a
3: dialect of C++ also known as Gecko? Like, isn't that thing whole just written in macros and macros and macros?
0: I mean, if you're using macros in C++, you're almost certainly doing something wrong. But but yes, there are lots of, there's lots of legacy code. That you, there's a lot of ugly, ugly parts of C++. I'm not defending... The, the like the language in its entirety, but the fact is that, pragmatically speaking, yeah. it's really hard to find something else for something like a browser.
1: You're practically starting from scratch in a lot of areas, and the yes. areas where you are not is like small pieces. And you know, I've been working on a, a full Rust project for over two years, and. We, have, we were only able to get started because we had things like the Tokyo Async runtime to build on top of and a bunch of libraries that we build, built on top of. But we're also doing a lot of architectural stuff from scratch.
0: Yeah. And that's, and that's why I just don't think rewrite and Rust is an option because, I mean, look what yeah. happened when, when Mozilla tried to redo. Gecko, or like, or when it became, uh, you know, it was Netscape at the time. And they were like, yeah. they, they were to yeah. redo their runtime. They did Gecko, et cetera. And even that, that still has uh, a lot of weird quirks of, of the original engine, but that was years of work
2: for that. And they were talking about a different language. Yeah. Last time you checked Chrome, would you, would you say that the Chrome team is in a place right now where. To whatever extent, the engineers actually doing the work on the project want to use Rust for things. Like if you if if that team spots a component that makes sense to write in Rust, can they do it? Are there any like other current logistical obstacles to doing it? Or is it like the Linux kernel where there's still a huge permissions process to get that work started?
0: Uh, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. Uh, (laughs) I will say that there are no shortage of strong opinions. Um, (laughs) And I think adding a new runtime. Uh, adding a new language, uh, et cetera. It's a big, it, it is always for any sort of stable, mature product. And frankly, it's a product that has very high development standards, uh, in my opinion,
2: that's always going to be kind of contentious. Yep. But it's not like Firefox, where like if the Firefox team spots something they want to do in Rust, they're just going to do it in Rust. I'll say it's certainly not my I- I impression, but this is the thing. <laughs> I, I'm yeah, not involved course, in course. those discussions anymore. Yeah.
0: Um, and they when I left, those discussions were you know, sort of rapidly evolving. So
2: okay. they might have evolved quite a bit. The thing you get from like C++ programmers, and I, I was a C plus C++ programmer, but a long time ago, right? So people talk about modern C++, mm-hmm. and I assume it's a completely different language than the one I was writing in 2001, right? But like y- yeah. you hear modern C++ programmers saying that there's not that much of a security gap between Rust and idiomatic modern you know, it, modern C++, uh, kind of the same way you, you might be able to make that claim about like objective C versus C, right? Like if you're using just yeah. the idioms, you're probably okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're using idiomatic modern C++, you're avoid, avoiding raw pointers, you know, you're using like own pointers and shared pointers. But then there's the question of like your com- compilation options, like mm-hmm. is your, are your containers bounds checked or not, depending on how you're compiling it. I, I would say that, I guess the way I would put it is that idiomatic modern C++ actually opens up the opportunity to introduce some of the core concepts of Rust into C++, but then you're going to have to like break ABI, then you're going to have to get the standards committee on board, etc. Yeah. I, I think one thing that could just create a sea change is pointer tagging, because like you look at pointer tagging and you could actually you, you can essentially write uh, rewrite your allocator so you essentially have like a GC allocator. You could do things like have an actual security enforcing um, ASAN, like uh, address sanitizer built in uh, into like a production runtime. If you have that hardware support for something like pointer tagging, uh, mm-hmm. what that will do is it will give you many of the memory safety guarantees of Rust. It won't give you all of them. You won't get like the, you won't get the thread safety guarantees, but mm-hmm. you will you will get a number of the the riskiest ones. And I, and I do think that that, might turn into sort of one of the paths of least resistance for c++
3: i don't know there's still just a lot of ways for stuff to go awry even if you yeah. aren't like just doing stir comps everywhere if you don't return a value from a function the compiler can't always warn you and it can still run like that you can set compiler flags to help with that sometimes you generally don't know if a pointer needs to be freed or not like if you're using it as an output parameter the Your constructors might do God knows what, when like depending on how
0: you typed in your initialization. But this is where I was talking about, if you have pointer tagging in hardware, you can actually make all of that behave far better. Your allocator essentially becomes like a a generational GC and it's just like rotating through the the tags and you can have even more fine grain checks. I mean, you're paying the cost in the silicon, right? But once you pay the cost of silicon, you're not paying execution time overhead for it. So this is the thing. My, my question is, if you're going to have like widespread support for um, the kind of hardware you need, like pointer tagging soon enough is so that rewriting in Rust isn't something that people are seriously considering for large scale things. Like, remember, Mozilla tried to do the rewrite in Rust with Servo um, mm-hmm. and eventually had to give it up. And it was a huge undertaking.
2: I mean, I think a thing you'll get from Rust is. Well, also you know, the pandemic
1: uh, hit and they had to lay, o- lay off like half of Mozilla. So I, I don't want to conflate why Servo has not succeeded with just it was hard to rewrite it in the brand new language we came up with.
0: I don't think it was just that. I think the pandemic was a smaller piece of it, but okay. I don't
2: see Mozilla's financial, so I can't say. Yeah. No. Rust has like a security activist, you know, language core, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, you could tell me that C++ has a security activist standards committee, but I wouldn't believe it. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to ever say that
0: because <laughs> it's not true. No, the standards I I, my concern is that the C++ standards committee does not take security anywhere near as seriously as they should. I mean, there's the whole. Uh, what's Sounds like the, Andy uh, Rubin. <laughs> well, no, because um, <laughs> Andy Rubin was actively hostile to security. Oh, OK, um, different. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh but yeah, there's the whole whatever the, the specifier is in C++ to say that you have to check the return value. Hmm. Um, and there's like a whole debate going back and forth about uh, like they added it to the standard for 20. But they're like, oh, it's a lot of work to do this for all the libraries and figure out which thing needs to check a return value and doesn't. So maybe we should just take it out and say, no, the standard library oh. won't ever uh, apply that uh, oh. specifier. And it's like, OK, that's a terrible idea. And so uh-huh. You get you get quite a bit of, of this where it does kind of feel like the the C++ it doesn't, there's there's a lot of good things to learn from other languages. And I think the people working on C++ standards and the standards committee should be a lot more open to learning mm. useful things from other languages.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, to round up the rest discussion. I want a Fuchsia phone. I want a <laughs> Fuchsia computer, like a end user Fuchsia computer, not just like, get a get a board and compile fuchsia for myself
2: (laughs) not just a nuck with fuchsia on it i'll I'll be honest and say that like whenever the topic of fuchsia comes up my brain just turns off i just stop thinking about it like sell me on sell me on paying any attention to fuchsia i don't know if i could tell you i'm paying any attention to fuchsia because
0: i don't know the future of fuchsia but i can Mm. say is it is a it is a very elegantly designed operating system from yes. a security perspective,
1: and not just because it's written in Rust with a C, C++ microkernel like the way they yeah, designed would,
0: it. Yeah, I would say the, the the Rust part is even sort of like a, a smaller piece of it. It's just like from an architectural perspective, like a process in Fuchsia is not created with any ambient capabilities. Oh, uh, it, yeah, it has to be like it, it is born into existence with nothing, <laughs> um, and you have to you have to actually consciously choose to hand over capabilities. Like the nice. simplest like. It's funny, you look at the sandboxing code for Chrome on like every platform, it's like there's a whole bunch of work to go shut down all this stuff that automatically gets turned on for <laughs> all of these different processes where it's like the Fuchsia uh, renderer broker is like this tiny little thing that just essentially does nothing um, except for like set up the IPC channel or whatever. So um, cute. Yes, it is it's a much clearer design. Uh, a good friend of mine is one of the uh lead engineers on Fuchsia. Uh, I think he described it as the the love child of Plan 9 and uh, NT. Uh, yeah. And you know, for everybody who doesn't like Windows, uh, you really have to take a closer look at NT. I think most okay. of the things you don't like about Windows are the Win32 things, but the actual NT kernel, the core, the design, it was a it was a very well thought out, very forward thinking design, and I think Fuchsia it took a lot of the the best parts of that and it actually like incorporated lessons learned to that so it is it is a it's a capabilities-based operating system it really takes the capabilities part seriously
1: yes and i think the latest i've heard is they are swapping out like the linux kernel or whatever the 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 base operating system for things like the nest hubs, or something like that. And it, they just sort of were able to d- like push it out and just be like, flip a flag, use fuchsia instead of what you've been using since the beginning of your existence. And it just worked. Something I mean, like that.
0: Whatever you have to do. um, for more updates in the field, you're always going to have some number of things that just rando failed. Uh, sure. But yes, uh, a bunch of the existing Nest devices got the update. Um, and it's just, uh, it, because it's a much simpler operating system, it actually, eh. you know, resources quickly. The issue with, the real issue with Fuchsia is that you don't have device driver support. Yeah. Like, remember the old Linux problems from yeah. the, the mid-90s? Like, that's where Fuchsia is Frankly, there's actually a bunch of stuff. like it's not
1: that old. Like you still run into <laughs> that when you're just trying oh, to plug in random crap. It's fair, machine. although every,
0: although every the reason why like Android and Linux based operating systems are so popular for embedded devices is because you do have s- driver support for all yeah, of that. Yeah. And Fuchsia yeah. has to build up that uh, yeah. driver support. Like I, I have friends on the Fuchsia team, uh, colleagues, etc. But I don't have any more insight into it okay. than anyone from the outside would have. But I just. I very much like the design. I very Me much uh, like the decisions they've made. I also would look at it as there's, you know, Fuchsia has layers. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's entirely possible to sort of take pieces of Fuchsia and integrate them over time. And I think that's actually, that's probably the best path forward. If you look mm-hmm. at something like the Nest uh, Nest devices where they, they just, they didn't do a heck of a lot. So it's easy to build that on top of Fuchsia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're looking at something like an Android device or a Chrome OS yeah. device, you yeah. would you would probably start at like be like, okay, we are going to stop using the Linux kernel because these devices have hardware support for the you know these drivers, et cetera. And we are going to swap out the Linux kernel and have a layer here above the Linux kernel. And you would just keep evolving that.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that.
0: That's that's just my guess. I am not speaking for anyone. I have no insight into how that would work, but sure. I, I do. Uh, it is how it is. The thing that makes sense to me.
1: I am a fan. <laughs> Justin, okay.
0: you don't come across as a marine. <laughs> I'm not. I was.
2: I'm not anymore. That was 20 years ago. If there was a group of people in the, in a room and I was going to point out the one that was likely to be a Marine, it wouldn't be you. Is that a bad thing to say? Uh, Should I say that you come across as a Marine? Uh, it was
0: it was an important formative life experience. I believe um, it. Yeah. But but it's the same point of I, I bet you I could find pictures of you 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and it would be like, that's a very different person
2: that is in front of me today. <laughs> Unfortunately, pro- probably not. I, I'm asking just because I'm curious. But of all of the service branches, why the Marines?
1: Marines are cool. I mean,
2: obviously, but
1: the Marines are cool. I knew it was Marines. The, it was,
0: yeah, it was the it was the um it, w- it was the hardest looking one. I dropped out of an art program. I was at Northern Illinois. Who are you? Up in DeKalb. I dropped out of a graphic. Well, they called it I think like studio art or whatever. Uh, at like 19, because uh, I just got sick of college. I'm like, I'm gonna go enlist in the Marines. So that was yeah, that was how that happened. How was that experience for you? Useful,
1: useful. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think I, I don't know. I think, I think people should take opportunities like broaden their horizons. I sure. think people tend to be—it's very easy to sort of just get in, inside your box, stuck inside your perspective. I think also there's like uh, nobody's going to say that I'm a kind hearted person on Twitter or anything like that, but <laughs> I see a whole lot of back and forth where people are making a whole lot of assumptions about any given situation. And I think it's like, if, you, if you've if you had enough diversity of experience in your life, it gets hard to make so many assumptions because you're like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know the rest of the
2: details here. So mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. Would you say having worked in the IC changed your views on anything that you work on today? I mean, I think I have a very, very different perspective
0: because of, you know, spending like nine years in the intelligence community, seeing this, uh, a lot of things from the other side. I also... I I am one of those people who is 100% supportive of uh, mandatory service, not necessarily like military, et cetera. But I think people make a lot of assumptions about how their government works, having mm-hmm. no exposure to how their government actually works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it kind of feels like people don't have skin in the game. So I think, you know, if you want, like, it's funny. I did the Marine Corps. My brother did the Peace Corps. My sister did AmeriCorps. We all did like very different things, but we all did like some term of government service. And I think it, mm. you know, it's very useful experience. Yeah.
2: Do you feel like people's ordinary model of, like, especially the offensive work that the IC does in computer security, do you think people have a good mental model of how that stuff actually works? In parts. Now, remember, <laughs> my knowledge
0: is stale. Sure, of course. By, by many years now. Um, I think people sometimes make a lot of crazy assumptions. <laughs> Um, Although, you
2: know, like there's, there's like a, there's a standing meme in our community that like, once you're at the NSA, when you leave and go back into industry, now you're an asset, it most often comes up with Dave (laughs) Vitell. I I think it might be in Nicole, I think it might be in Nicole Perloth's book about how he's an (laughs) NSA asset. It's hilarious because frankly, there are a lot of people
0: at NSA that were like, during my time there, uh, were not happy with Dave. Like the notion of, uh, like the, you know, left NSA, went to the, you know, Light of business that he did, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know. But Dave and Dave's also always been a very outspoken, very direct person. <laughs> um, he's mellowed over the years, certainly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do remember. I remember my time at at, at SA. Dave and I were both in uh, a program called uh, SNIP, which was like a uh, it's like an interdisciplinary program. And uh, I, I started it a few years after Dave left, and there were still stories uh, <laughs> about about interactions. Uh, or it was even stories about interactions or just people had opinions mm-hmm. but yes I, I am 100% certain Dave has never been an NSA asset after we've <laughs> <Ed's. laughs>
2: I'm a kind of Dave vitell admirer and like, there's a South Park episode it's called Simpsons Did It where mm-hmm. like the punchline of every yes. joke is that like every joke came from the Simpsons first and he was my Simpsons Did It for a while and I, I, I gave up on ever ever getting ahead of him on stuff and moved <laughs> into cryptography which is why I'm here now and <laughs> you know
0: yeah I think Tom Dave was a very polarizing figure back in the day. Not just not just among his former government colleagues, but in general, Dave was a very polarizing figure back in the day.
2: I also have a lot is he of not admiration.
0: Still, a for polarizing, polarizing figure? <laughs> figure. Oh, I guess I find Dave much less polarizing, but maybe that says more about me. <laughs> I have a sort of built-in admiration of polarizing figures to to an extent. So, <laughs> I mean, also I like Dave. I, I I find his input uh very useful. He is uh, he's genuine. Like I will say the hardest thing for, or one of the craziest things for me was um, when I started moving into like the privacy space. That there, there was almost like an aversion to the idea of coming up with threat models and mm. trying to like scope the problem because really? people wanted the flexibility of not having threat models huh. and being able to sort of ad hoc define things in a uh, in no, this is not like the now I'm not talking about like uh, private space in terms of like you know wait when you're actually like. Specking things down uh-huh. to uh like can and limited levels above all of that i'm talking about things like oh we put out this new privacy feature it's like okay what's your threat model yeah, for that privacy feature yeah, it's like yeah. it's a privacy feature
1: yeah <laughs> that sounds stressful though it sounds like everything's in scope that sounds very stressful as you as a defender
0: yeah i this is the problem the privacy space is like like I, so i remember the security space back in like the mid-90s or whatever it was basically lots of security, like lots of AV, lots of security products, stuff like yeah, that. Um, yeah. Not much in terms of like, hey, let's actually re-engineer these things. Like, the thi- mm. I totally remember what Thomas was talking about with the whole, like, you know, replacing store copy everywhere. Microsoft really did care, really did put in the time and energy yeah. to 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 make some significant changes. But the first several years of my exposure was, was it reminds me of the privacy space right now, where mm-hmm. it's just lots of people saying, look it's a no coherent threat model. It's like, look, it's a privacy thing. So Uh I guess it's, I I don't know. I see, I guess what I'm kind of saying is that I would like to see like uh, like a Dave I tell in the privacy space or, or you know, more people like that who will like directly sort of like call things out when they're, when, when, you know, when -hmm. it's just ambiguous crap. Mm
1: -hmm. This leads me into one of the last things I think we have time to talk about. Organizational mindset about, security and privacy in Apple versus not Apple. Maybe that's in Google or in Android or in Chrome, because it seems like iOS should be very secure. It has good bones, like architecturally, it has good bones. And yet, and yet they say that they care about privacy, but it's like define that a little bit more, uh, especially some of the things that they've been pushing out lately versus not Apple. And it seems to be an organizational thing. Because like we started this talk basically saying like we know so many amazing security and I think privacy people working at these companies, but then but then it kind of peters off.
2: I I mean I think, you know, you you can talk about like there's different engineering disciplines between the companies. And you guys have good insight into Justin or you in particular have good insight into the engineering culture differences. But like, I feel like Apple's bona fides on privacy technology are pretty solidly kind of like they, they did a lot of work that wasn't published for a long time, but is now published. Like for instance, like the quorum HSM work for the, uh, the, the pin lookup for iCloud and all that stuff. Right. Mm. They, they put a lot of engineering effort into stuff that other people aren't even considering doing. Mm Um, you know, the, the enclave process is another thing, right? Like that was nowhere before, before they did it. Right. They, they do a lot of stuff that they're not required to do, um, but you know, just cause they take the problem seriously. I, I tend to come up with these mm-hmm. things as, like as a last thing to talk about, I think probably iOS CSAM, probably not the best thing for us to open up right now. Right. <laughs> but like. Any technical work that they say or any engineering work that they say that they're doing or any safeguarding work that they say they're doing, I tend to believe them and kind of take them, you know, in, in good faith on that they put the effort in. That doesn't mean it's the right necessarily, the right thing necessarily for them to do. My feelings about that are super, super complicated. Right. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't put that down to it, like to a culture of not caring about it. I, I no, think probably like
1: it's it, I guess I'm trying to get at like it's feels sometimes like iOS, Mac OS security culture is resting on its laurels in terms of good architectural things but then like reintroducing the same bug fixes like like they they fixed a vuln and then it came back and they had to fix it again like several well, releases later
0: it's the engineering rigor um okay. Okay. which so and this is my personal take interacted with apple quite a bit over my time at, at google particularly when we shared uh uh, a code base uh, with WebKit. <laughs> and I think it is fair to say that the team in Mountain View was essentially doing the security work that for both of the browsers at that point in time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and my perspective interacting with Apple over the years is they have very good people, but the number of people they have... It's weird. This is a recurring pattern across Apple, like okay. the number of the, the number of people they invest in something like Apple put, you know, a person on it. Google put a team on it. This yeah. is this is kind of like a mentality. Google, Google will over engineer and overdo things. Uh, yeah. I, I have observed this. Uh-huh. Um but like you look at, so Apple's been getting a lot of hits for fairly dodgy web standard support, mm-hmm. um, basic functionality that works in other browsers, but it's it's buggy, unreliable, et cetera, in Apple. Mm-hmm. And, I, and this has been my experience. It's sort of a, a recurring pattern with Apple where they're just, uh, that stuff requires a larger team of people just work, just churning through bugs. Right. It's not, it's, so the thing you said about good bones, it's like, I think there are a lot of. Good bone. I think there are a lot of things with like good designs. Yeah. Uh, I think like I actually think Apple's uh, design for notarization is actually a very good design, right. and yeah. it is a design that I think would make that makes a lot of sense if you want to get most of the uh, essentially anti malware benefit uh, of an app store without mm. actually having to have a closed app store. I think their implementation <laughs> of it has been terrible, uh, <laughs> but but the actual design and architecture and the ideas behind it are, are quite good the way the way you fix that is you throw a bunch more engineers at it to churn through the bug list and it fix huh. it and make it good and i think particularly post aurora security engineering excellence just became a thing at google mm. it's like well obviously we are amazing engineers and so our security engineering must be amazing mm. um and, and so it was sort of easy to like to to work that way i, I don't know how you get that So it was okay. We would throw a whole bunch of people, uh, a whole bunch of engineers to just turn through the bug list. Mm We don't know how you get that same kind of like culture. I don't know how that you get that connection at Apple. Mm -hmm. Um, That
1: like paradigm shift in identity when you haven't had something like Aurora happen to you.
0: Yeah, although I feel like they keep having the like they do keep having these things happen. Like remember, Microsoft got hit with a whole bunch of worms until they, you know, they had to seriously internalize it. Microsoft huh. really wasn't hit directly that much. There was that's true. The big lots incident. of little yeah. things. Yes, and I feel yeah. like Apple should be at that point where they're like, okay, we just have to accept that this isn't like this isn't the thing where it's like the whiz bang shiny new feature. You market around mm-hmm. it, you're good. This is the mm-hmm. thing of we to do it right. We need to throw a bunch of bodies at it, and they just need to churn through a bug list. And uh, practically that, all
1: over the place. They have to be like embedded and distributed.
0: It's not just yes. like, well,
1: we're going to throw like a thousand engineers at iMessage and we'll be fine or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, it, it's all over the place.
0: Yeah. And that was it, it, that was sort of like the Apple people on, um, on WebKit and Safari prided themselves on having a, a fraction of the size of a team. the the equivalent chrome people
1: yeah but like the the bugs like you know that's you know maybe you could be proud of that if you haven't had like a zero day and like every you know patch every release it's like yeah this was a zero day vulnerability and it was found by somebody else
0: yeah and that's so that that is my take on this that it's it's one of those things where when you're one of these big companies you'll get to a point where you're like look we, we have to we have to rearchitect things. So, think they, there are intelligent things that we can do to make this better. And and I do see Apple doing a decent amount of that. But yeah. the other pieces. And we have to throw the bodies at it to fix all this damn stir copies. And I don't see them saying throwing all the bodies at it. Like, no, no, no. New is bang technology that solves (laughs) this. It's like, (laughs) no. It's like an innovation versus maintenance thing almost. Yeah. It very much is. No, I think that's exactly it. It's like my sister works in urban policy and planning. And she's like, we don't need people building new bridges. We need people fixing the bridges we have. Yep. People only want to build new bridges.
1: Yeah. That's um, exciting and, yeah. and fun and Yeah, and, and novel. you get credit for
0: it. Yeah, you get your name on the bridge, potentially. And Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Bringing us back to fuchsia.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well.
0: It, it's hmm. a fair point that fuchsia hmm. is
2: a new thing. But I don't know how much I disagree with the argument about, like, I think big, there's a place for big moves, too, right? Yeah. So yeah. We,
1: it's not I mean, like no it. one's been doing the maintenance on Linux for the last 20 plus years. Yeah, it's not like right?
0: Google in particular hasn't been doing a ton of the particularly the security maintenance. You yeah. have people like like Case Cook, who is just like, there are times where I'm like, wow, he is like single-handedly the protector. He's not single-handedly, but he's sure doing a lot protecting Linux. feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> At times, certainly. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, there is, there is space to do big new things, but I would say part of the Fuchsia thing is
2: they're, they're also doing all of the little work Uh to get it right. Nice. I I need Case Cook on just to run us from like 4.x up to current 5. Just, Mm. um, there's a blog somewhere and I try to keep up with it, but there's just so much stuff going on. Mm. Yeah. The stuff he does
0: is just, uh, this is one of the things I really loved about working at Google. The amount of like just public and open source contributions that you get to, that, that you get to do, you, just, you feel good about that. Um, it's not that there weren't upsides and downsides to be at Google. It's not that Google's a perfect company in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. But I'm very proud of the vast majority of, of what I did at Google. And I like the fact that I got to make so many public contributions in my time at Google.
2: Yeah. I'll ask you one last question just related to that. So I think a lot of us probably already know about the work that Case Cook does. Is there somebody else besides them that we're not paying enough attention to hey. that your work has brought you into contact with in the field. But. Come up with one real quick. <laughs> um, uh, Abhishek Aria. Uh, oh, I know them. Who,
1: yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. He um, so he was the my first, uh, you, you know, your mentor for a, a new Google that comes on board at Google. So a new employee starts at Google. So he was the first person who I mentored at Google. He was had just joined uh, Chrome security but he's a principal engineer or director. Uh, he's he's an exec now, but he's essentially responsible for the big fuzzing efforts, like cluster oh, yeah. fuzz. Yeah, cluster fuzz, OSS fuzz, uh, all of that. It was like, it literally started as him grabbing interns' <laughs> workstations as they would leave. Like they would leave for the summer. He started grabbing their workstations and would like was like stacking them under his desk to run fuzzers. Yeah. And then that evolved from his... Legs basically getting burned by all of these Xeon workstations under his desk to like moving into the cloud and all that. And now, yeah, he's like in charge of an entire team and just, yeah, it's another, what those things, it just has a huge impact on the industry as a whole, like particularly with OSS fuzz, um, mm-hmm. where they're just basically like, hey, we're just gonna, you know, all of this software is important. We are going to give you a framework for building fuzzers and running against it. it, it it's amazing how much it's evolved and the fuzzing stuff that they've done. They keep incorporating all of the new advances in funding yep. fuzzing in terms of like the different yeah the input guided and I forget the names of all the different and kinds like of coverage fuzzing
1: guided stuff. And, and coverage guided yes, yeah yeah they was support for, yes. they support like AFL and they, they support multiple different kinds of fuzzers they they did all the documentation to ha- to help you get uh, a Rust binary uh, covered and and all automatically updated and they'll automatically report it's a it's a it's extremely valuable because. I tried to set up an instance of cluster fuzz and I had it and it was like, okay, I could do this or everything could be open and they could report it. I could use OSS fuzz to report back to me. And yep. it's like, it's a non-trivial amount of work to just make that project go. And it's extremely valuable to just anyone who just sets up a, you know, a fuzz target. It's great. <laughs>
0: yeah. You can just, you got your open source software. You can just set up a fuzz target. I mean, it's not entirely plug and play, but it's about as close as you can get to plug and play when you're dealing with fuzzing. So yeah, that whole team.
1: You can run your fuzz target as part of your CI, but the whole point is that you got to keep it going. You got to keep yes. throwing the computers at the fuzzing or else you may not get the 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 full value out of it. And that's the hard part of cluster fuzz solves.
0: Yeah, I don't get the thing where people have been trying to run fuzz targets as part of CI. That's kind of like, I'm, I'm just going to breathe oxygen yeah. for like uh, a minute or two, and then I'm going to go about the rest of my
2: day. And it's like, it's no, like, that's not the way fuzzing works. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, Abhishek Arya and also OSS Fuzz. Excellent, excellent examples. Thank you, Justin, so much for for being here. Thank you, Justin. This has been a lot of fun. This is cool. All right. I'm hanging up a
1: lot.